This week, we're taking your COVID-19 questions on Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike. This is a podcast where we believe every sincere question deserves an honest and non-judgmental response. I'm your host, Mike McCarg, the Science Mike from the title. And uh, this is a program where we, you know, respond to curiosity with evidence-based information in an emotionally focused and emotionally aware way. A combination I find all too rare in our world. Right up top this week. I've got a couple of announcements. Number one is, have you ever noticed that when life is changing, we often find ourselves some way at odds with our friends and family and social community, whether it's a new job or moving to a new city or having a change in your faith system or your gender identity or your sexuality. Anytime we go through a season of change, often the people around us just don't get it. They're like, why are you changing? Why are you different? I like the way you were before. What's going on? And that can lead us to feel lonely and estranged and confused and sap us of the energy we need to continue to change and grow as people. And so I've created something called the Overview Program that is named after what happens to astronauts when they see the Earth from space for the first time. And uh, it is a way that's based on evidence and psychology and uh, behavioral economics and all these things that I study and love that helps us make it through transitions and thrive in the process. You see, the Overview Program is an evidence-based system for navigating change, and I use a non-judgmental, supportive space for collaborative problem-solving to do that. So we use the Overview Program, which is a step-by-step process, and then we create kind of an emotional space around that that helps us make it through change successfully. It's support at the moment you need it the most. Now, of course, the Every Program is not, and I mean is not, therapy or counseling or coaching, as I'm not a therapist or a counselor or a coach. This is simply a way to go through an evidence-based process with some support and an outside perspective. There's two ways we do that. Number one is something called Overview Stations, which is a 10-person eight-week program, which is marvelous. You know, I've done these before. Uh, we're bringing them back because people are requesting it. But um, this, the, the group model of working with other people is really powerful. As you see other people, you know, going through a transition that's not your transition, but this, the commonality and the similarities you face means not only do you find solidarity, but it's really easy to have a sounding board and a perspective. So that's Overview Stations, 10 people. Overview Voyages is two people. One of them is me. So it'd be me and you going through the Overview program together. Of course, space for that one is extremely, I mean, extremely limited. Um, but because it is a program from Science Mike, both Overview Stations and Overview Voyages uh, always have scholarship spots available as well. So if that sounds interesting to you, you are in the middle of or starting some transition in your life and you feel stuck or you feel like you could use a little bit of uh, of support as you move through that transition, I'd encourage you to go to overviewprogram.com to learn more and apply if you are interested. Again, that URL is overviewprogram.com. The other announcement I'd like to say, and this is less of an announcement than just a wow, is hey, hello to all of you new patrons. I have noticed uh, the last, oh, I don't know, two or three months, a big uptick in the number of patrons supporting Ask Science Mike, and that just means so much to me. As you know, this is not a show that I do alone. There is a team behind it, and all of you patrons are helping it so the people who spend all this time making the show happen uh, get paid for their efforts, and I just so appreciate your participation 
that I wanted to thank you right at the top of the program this week. So with that, this week, um, kind of a special episode. I've I've done a few COVID episodes. You know, I'm not ever really sure how much COVID to talk about, whether uh, Ask Science Mike should be a time for people to get away from COVID-19 and not think about it. Uh, and yet I get a lot of COVID questions, and especially because people are telling me, gosh, I just, I really don't know who to trust when it comes to my questions about COVID-19. I don't know what media is trustworthy and what's not and how to tell the difference. And uh, I got a lot of requests over the last couple of weeks. I've done a couple of COVID episodes. Would you do a question and response episode just about COVID? And so that's what we're going to do. Compared to some of my other COVID episodes, I don't expect this one to be especially emotionally intense. So, um, you know, we've had some, some hard things to discuss in other COVID episodes. I have had some very... Um, weighty opinions about how we are responding to COVID-19. And although that will certainly come up in this episode as well, I think this one will be easier to listen to uh, for people who are processing stress and anxiety from the pandemic than some of the other COVID episodes I've done. This one is very uh, solutions focused and, and, you know, helps us set expectations and those sorts of things. Um, and so that's what this episode's going to be. I think we'll probably just jump right into it. Uh, and I don't, you know, I think I'm just going to like run through the whole thing start to finish. One last point. We are in the middle of a heat wave in fire season in Los Angeles. So um, the air outside my home is full of smoke particles. I've been having some respiratory difficulties as a result of that. I'm very sensitive to air pollution. Um and so this episode is rec- getting recorded on Monday, the same day it's going to be released, because I've had a lot of coughing and wheezing over the weekend. And number two, because it is so hot, all the air conditioners are running all the time. So if you hear any mechanical noises in the background, that is my neighbor's air conditioner. And if I wait for that to not be on to record in the middle of the heat wave, I have to record at like 2 a.m. So I apologize if there are any sound issues or my voice sounds funny at all. I apologize. I think it sounds okay right now, but this is the first time my voice has sounded up to snuff in several days as we've been dealing with a lot of smoke from the fires in L.A. So let's get right into our first question from Rachel. And Rachel says, of course, this is still a ways out. But I'm already thinking of how the need to quickly get a vaccine to market will be used as an excuse from anti-vaxxers who will likely claim that it's unsafe because it was rushed and other more radical conspiracy theories. But most vaccines do take a long time to develop. So increased risks when this one is first made available seem real. Do you have any advice on assessing the risk? And how to tell when the eventual vaccine is safe. Rachel, as I told you uh, in a comment on your question, this is an outstanding question. Um, I think it's broadly applicable and well-composed. You know, I've heard so many vaccine conspiracy theories lately. I mean, not just online people in my life that I know and love and respect, have been in all seriousness asking me if COVID-19 is was created by Bill Gates to sell vaccines, and uh, I really have to dig deep into a uh, you know my non-judgmental gear to respond uh, to questions from friends like that in an uh, an amicable and supportive way, um, and so I think your concern that. Um, when a COVID vaccine arrives, it will be met with tremendous skepticism and even conspiracy theories is dead on. Uh, that is already happening. And it is true. The medical community is working to mobilize to create a vaccine for COVID-19 at a speed unmatched in history. And this, this is impressive work, frankly. Um, so what are the risks of that? Well, um, vaccines that have gone through an approval process are not risk-free. There's no such thing as a no-risk vaccine. 
What you want with a vaccine is number one is that it should be it should have a fifty percent efficacy threshold. In other words, it's fifty percent more efficient than doing nothing. Uh, that helps you get towards herd immunity. And number two, the risks of the vaccine should be dramatically lower than the disease itself. Okay, so uh, you know you get the flu shot. Flu shot is not without risks. It has side effects. You can get a fever. Something maybe maybe two percent of people who get a flu vaccine have a short term low fever as a result of that. They have inflammation at the injection site. Well, you know, a two percent risk of a low fever and swelling at the injection site, that's a lot lower health risk than what influenza does to a population group. Do you see? Now, more rarely flu vaccines, people can have allergic responses to them or whatever that are more serious. And we know that. You can say, well, why would we put someone at risk of a severe allergic reaction to a vaccine? That doesn't seem safe. And it is simply much safer when you look across an entire population for a very small number of people to have an allergic reaction and then get a medical intervention to to treat that than to leave the disease spreading on its own. COVID-19 makes an even more obvious case because... So many people are dying from COVID-19, and let's be clear, our research is telling us that the official counts are are undercounted, probably pretty significantly, when we compare overall mortality rates for 2020 compared to 2019 and 2018 and 2017, we see in the United States especially, death rates are just, they've gone up quite a bit, and uh, some of that is because people are avoiding treatments for other diseases because they're afraid of doctors' offices and hospitals. And then part of that is people are what? They are getting COVID-19 and they are dying. And for various reasons, their deaths are not being counted as COVID-19 deaths. And so the threshold for doing less harm than COVID-19, you can start to see why pushing the timetable a little bit on vaccines is probably a medically wise move. So we have a number of promising vaccines that have already been formulated and have started testing. And so your early tests in a vaccine, kind of your phase one trials, are where you see if the, if the formulation of this vaccine is effective. Does this vaccine actually create some degree of additional immunity targeted against a specific disease or not? And we have seen a number of vaccines that hit and exceed that golden 50% threshold, that is good news. Phase three in trials is where you do large-scale testing with tens of thousands of participants. And at that point, you are trying to get a better look at your efficacy, sure. But the main thing you're looking for in phase three trials are side effects. What side effects are there and how widespread are those side effects. Phase three is where you give a lot of people placebo and you compare the side effects of the placebo group to the side effects of the group that are actually receiving the vaccine formulation. This is really important because if your placebo group is showing side effects and your actual vaccine group show the same side effects and the same percentages, you have a very safe vaccine. And some side effects simply don't show up until after a drug or vaccine has been approved and started to be used across population groups. Humans are complicated organisms. We are biochemically complex. We have incredible variances in our composition. And so the only way to kind of know how a vaccine does in the wild is to release it in the wild. So our testing is to minimize the chance of serious side effects showing up. And I'm actually pretty proud. So far in the U.S., it looks like we are not skipping any phase three trials in the United States. Now, how do we know? Well, you can bet that there will be whistleblowers in the medical community if people and companies uh, rush through phase three trials or try to bury evidence. Um. So, so I, I tend to have, you know, still today, even in the Trump administration, 
a greater degree of trust in vaccines produced here than, say, what we're seeing in Russia, where they're already administering uh, a vaccine whose efficacy and overall side effects are not known. And I won't be like the first person in line to get the COVID vaccine. Uh, I'm at a higher risk group, and I'll probably, I'll probably, you know, I'll step back and kind of watch out goes for several reasons. Number one, I'm a podcaster. I work from home. Um, I can safely self-isolate longer than some other people can. You know, if, if I have a history of heart disease, I, I am, um, I want to say I'm obese and I've gotten a lot of pushback from the audience about using that word. I can't think of another word in a medical context uh, at this moment. So I'm just going to run with obese with my apologies to um, to the fat advocacy groups for saying the term obese. But it, it's going to be too big a delay to try to work through that language uh, and still get this episode out today. I am obese. And we know that obesity in conjunction with COVID-19 is a significant risk factor uh, for severe case presentations and death. So I have a number of factors that mean if I get COVID, I have a, a bigger chance of having a bad case or death from COVID than other people. But there's some people who are my age, they're male like me, they have heart disease like me, they have all these things, and they're essential workers and they have to be out there working. I'd rather them have a chance to get the vaccine first. So I won't be in the first wave for that reason. Um, and then as you know, viruses or as the vaccine is going out, we should all be paying attention to news reporting on, on what happens. But absolutely, taking a vaccine is an informed risk. Typically, that risk is very low. Um, and it, it's too early right now. Um, I, don't, I don't have my like vaccine safety protocol. There's too many variables. I'm going to have to wait till the vaccine gets closer and see what the medical community is saying and what kind of uh, digging journalists do to uncover things and... Um, and then make an informed decision that way. I will tell you eventually, uh, I will take a COVID-19 vaccine. There's no question. Um, because the risk of a vaccine is just going to be a lot lower than the risk of the disease itself. Make sense? Okay. Next question. Marissa said, how can we be strategic and smart about reopening schools? Should we send kids back if we have the means to help them succeed at home? What factors should parents or school districts be taking into account when making the decision to return to in-person schooling? Marissa, another extraordinary question. And one thing I've been frustrated about the school conversation in the United States is we treat it like it's a separate conversation than managing the pandemic in general. And it is not. The safest way to help schools succeed is to control the outbreak more generally in society, we have research telling us that children can be super spreaders. We have research telling us that children can have, even if they have mild cases of COVID-19, severe long-term health consequences uh, as a result of having the virus. We should not be gambling with our children's lives. And uh, we, have, we have been too ready to gather indoors as adults uh, and that has cost that has cost us schools this fall. It is not safe almost anywhere in the United States to open schools back up and pack them with children. And it is adults' fault. It is our elected leaders at the federal level, at the state level, and the local level when they reopened indoor dining, even briefly. I just couldn't believe it. We're going to talk about that later in the show because there's some questions about air circulation. Folks, it is not safe to be indoors with large numbers of people. There, are, COVID-19 is wildly out of control in its spread in the United States. It's not safe to open schools. What factors should we be looking at? We should be looking at the total number of COVID cases and COVID hospitalizations and COVID deaths. We should look um, at our testing capacity 
our ability to turn tests around, and the percentage of our tests that come back positive. So right now we don't even have a lot of the ingredients to even start making the assessment. And we're talking about open schools. So to your point, so let, let's just get that out of the way. We have handled this horribly. Like just a, tr a truly, truly F minus on helping schools. We're not funding schools with the funding they need to reopen safely. So what do we do in the meantime? Everybody who can keep their kids home needs to keep their kids home. And I, this is terrible. Let me just say it is terrible. This is bad for children developmentally. This is bad for children emotionally. This is bad for how children learn. Distance learning is it is a great model for adults doing work. It is a terrible model for children learning. We have let our children down. Our children need to be in school. Our children deserve to be in school. And we have failed them. But So we have to stop pretending that we haven't. So everyone who can keep their kids home and support them well in distance learning needs to do so. And then there's a lot of essential workers. There's a lot of families below the poverty line. There's a lot of childcare needs. There's a lot of nutritional needs. So partially opening schools to families that need it most is a socioeconomic necessity. What does that look like? It looks like nutritional drop-off and pickup. So uh, opening schools up for meals. Those meals, you know, you have, you have meals that can, you can pick up and take a meal and go. You don't even stay. Or kids can stay. They can eat their food uh, in a time-limited way. They eat outdoors. They social distance. Um, and then also focusing on elementary first, then middle, then high school in terms of getting kids back on campus, kids that need it, uh, kids whose families, they don't have the technology infrastructure at home. Uh, the work demands are too high for various reasons. They can't keep us home. Now here's the problem. A lot of people just like want to send their kids back to school because they're tired of their kids being home. Um, and, uh, I, I'm not super optimistic about Americans, making communal decisions here uh you should be thinking if you can keep your kids home keep your kids home to to allow classrooms to have fewer students in them um it can be safer if children arrive at school in a staggered drop-off and staggered pickup topology and they are uh, they go into a classroom and they stay there all day they are socially distanced in the classroom the classroom is frequently disinfected. Um, they don't go to the cafeteria. Meals are delivered room by room. Meals are eaten at desk. It is not a good picture. And basically what you end up with is remote learning at school. And again, you could listen to me and say, Mike, this is terrible for kids emotionally. This is terrible for kids developmentally. And absolutely it is. It is, and it's better than the death toll than we will have if we just open schools again. Again, we are seeing cardiac damage in children. We are seeing brain damage in children. We are seeing organ system damage in children from COVID-19, and that doesn't even include people that get uh, multi-system inflammation syndrome, COVID. COVID's bad, y'all, and we keep just acting like things can go back to normal. It cannot now we can't other countries have reopened schools so if we increase our testing capacity if we actually mitigate the virus through a full lockdown four to five weeks and get it back down to the point where contact tracing works to the point where we have universal masking there are definitely ways to get there we just aren't there today now that means as many children as possible need to be distance learning. My kids start school this week in their bedrooms. And uh, I am so fortunate that we're able to support that well. And not every family can.
this this pandemic is really digging into the structural inequalities of U.S. society. Um, we haven't just failed at the pandemic. This is outlining and this is highlighting all the ways we fail at cooperating together as a society. Got a couple of links here for you. Uh, one is preparing K-12 school administrators for a safe return to school in fall 2020. This is for your own enrichment. This is so you can understand the best practices for schools and you can compare what your school is doing to what the guidelines are. And then the other is a piece that says what other nations can tell the U.S. about how to safely reopen schools during the COVID-19 pandemic, which is simply a collection of um, observations from other countries that have reopened their schools and done so safely. And what you'll see is consistently those countries have done a good job um, controlling the overall pandemic rate in their society. They're just doing a good job with the overall infection, uh, with the overall pandemic, and the U.S. is not. Not at all. And as we are all uh, trying to do our best to help our children learn and help our children be engaged. This is a hard time, friends. And my sponsor, KiwiCo, has been a major part of how we are addressing learning needs at home. KiwiCo uh, creates crates. What the heck is a crate? A crate is a sustainably produced, uh, designed in California, STEAM learning kit science, technology, engineering, art, and math. Uh, these are delightful hands-on activities that help people learn by doing. Uh, they are available in various ranges uh, that, you know, very small infants. Uh, there's a line called the Panda Crate. Uh, it goes all the way up to the Maker and Eureka Crate for uh, older teens and adults. You can change your line anytime you want. You know, maybe this week you want to do more, this month you want to do more arts focused, next month more of an engineering focus. That's fine. KiwiCo will let you change what line you're a part of anytime, whenever you want. It's an absolutely wonderful, wonderful product. Now, I will confess, it is not just my kids who play with Kiwi crates, mom and dad do as well. <laughs> so. I have my own subscription. I like the Eureka, Eureka and Maker crates a lot. Uh, I enjoy it. Uh, I built a ukulele. That was one of the most fun things I've done in a while. Uh, so it's it's fun for the whole family. And Ask Science Mike listeners have a special offer. If you go to kiwico.com slash Mike, they're going to give you 60% off your first, first month of any KiwiCo line. You get started today. This is a great way to kick off your in-home learning school year. Do something special. Why not KiwiCo? Again, that URL is kiwico.com slash AskScienceMike. All right. Another question here. We got two. Oh, no, it's just one question. Our next one is two questions in one. Okay. So uh, this question says, could we have some input about how to take care of ourselves in this time from voices who are currently still out in the workforce. I have a job that I still have to go to, and sometimes I feel forgotten when all the public voices, podcasts, etc., are from people who have been quarantining or staying at home, as if here we all are, this is the universal experience, we're all at home, when in fact many of us still have to go to work unless we want to voluntarily quit slash lose our jobs. Everyone's challenges are valid, of course, but I would love guidance that acknowledges the different challenges of people still having to wake up anxious each day and still go out in the world. Well, I am not a voice who is currently out in the workforce. I haven't been um, an office worker in years, even prior to the pandemic. But I still wanted to have your question on this this show. I wanted the perspective that your question represented, even if I can't meaningfully or authentically represent those voices. You know, I heard a story on NPR last week about the mental health crisis impacting our essential workers. 
the rates of depression, of anxiety disorders, even suicidality and suicidal ideation. Your question perfectly illustrates our stunning failure as a society in the face of this pandemic. And I'm sorry. Something's happened in the United States. You know, we it's so often called a Christian nation. Self-described. But COVID-19 has been showing me that America does not worship Christ. Or the Christian Trinity. Or freedom. Or liberty. Or the Constitution. By America's actions, America worships money. It desires money. It desires the approval of money. It desires to acquire money and increase the amount of money. That it has. That seems to be one of the truly universal themes of the so-called American experience. Money, 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 money. And we've adopted such a short-term, penny-wise and pound-foolish approach to money. Governments think financially to the next election. Companies think financially to the next quarter. And when you think to the next election, or forget the next election, to next week's poll numbers, and the next quarter, you make really dumb decisions. Like saying it's too expensive to lock down the economy. And instead, we send people out in the middle of a pandemic. We never locked down in this country. Our shelter-at-home orders were so narrow compared to other countries that beat this pandemic. And the reason our shutdown orders were narrow is because we don't have the infrastructure in place to care for people. If you look at America's health care policy and our personal time off laws, there are almost none. And so you look at the actual policy, Americans work a lot more and we're a hand-to-mouth culture. Other than the very wealthy, most Americans are a paycheck or two away from bankruptcy. We have no social safety net of substance to speak of. And so that means people like you face a choice. Go out in the middle of a pandemic and work and potentially catch a disease and die, or stop working and lose your health care and lose your home. Pennywise and pound foolish. Our economy would be in such better shape if we would have covered the basic needs to food and housing of every American for four to five weeks. So no one worried about whether they would have housing or food or bankruptcy and did a full shutdown and used that time to turn around and build up our testing capacity and build up our contact tracing capacity like other countries did. And because... We refuse to do that because we started at such a deficit compared to other countries who have more robust healthcare systems and more robust social safety nets. We're in this protracted twilight zone experience where some of us are stuck at home and haven't seen friends or gone to a restaurant since the first days of spring. 
while others of us have gone to work and worked long hours in constant fear of is today the day that scratchy throat means something more. I've been so frustrated, friends, for both groups. And I've been so frustrated that so many people don't even want to have the conversation. They don't even want to have the conversation about the relationship between American capitalism and human exploitation. Because that's what this is. Christina, what you face every day is exploitation. The system has put you between a rock and a hard place. What can you do? Well, you can wear a mask all the time. You can wash your hands frequently. And you can maintain as much distance between yourself and others as you can. If possible, open some windows. Some studies show that even 10 minutes of every hour opening windows indoors helps to vent aerosol particles out and reduce transmission rates. But ultimately, the situation you're faced with <clears throat> is not fair. Then there's little advice anyone can offer you beyond what I just said. Wear a mask. Advocate for ma everyone to wear masks as policy in your workplace. Improve ventilation. Sanitize surfaces. Wash your hands a lot. And create physical distancing between yourself and other people. And those of us who are stuck at home, we need to spend our energy advocating for those people who are stuck out there working every day. It is us who have the time to harass elected leaders ceaselessly about how our country is handling these things, and especially, my friends, those of you um, with Republican representatives, Republican senators, and Republican members of the House. Call them. Raise hell. Because our states and our cities are constrained. They can't do deficit spending, and they can't print currency. Only the federal government has the ability to shape the economy so fundamentally. And we need to let them know that we are not going to accept the working conditions that have been placed on those that still have to work. We are not going to accept such widespread economic insecurity. Republican or Democrat alike, they all need to know that. Republicans just have a unique capacity right now to put pressure on the administration, right? So we, the, the, the occupants of the White House have made it very clear they will ignore everything coming from Democratic senators and even from the Democratic majority of the House. That's why I mention Republicans. Not because Democrats have handled the pandemic well. They have not. But because Democrats have almost no ability to put pressure on the administration. But Republican lawmakers do, and Republican lawmakers will only do that if they are terrified that they are going to lose an election for their office. And so that's what we have to do. For those of you who have to work every day, thank you, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry for every way that I haven't done enough to hold up a social contract. 
I'm sorry for every action I've taken in my entire life that has contributed to the kind of structural inequality that we are being crushed under right now. I'm sorry. We've got two questions next. Uh, these two questions um, kind of are in a theme. One comes from Lauren who said, I've read some articles talking about how indoor ventilation systems, both air conditioning and heat, circulate the air and therefore the virus farther than 6 to 10 feet. And I'm immunocompromised, so basically I'm afraid to be any indoors anywhere with anyone besides my husband. We're going hiking and swimming in places where we can appropriately social distance, but we basically resigned ourselves to the idea that we may not go anywhere like a li library, museum, store, or mall for a very long time because ventilation systems will circulate any COVID germs of anyone in the room or building all around the space. How much truth is there to this concern, and how cautious do we really need to be? And then Sachi had a question uh, that said, I have heard that a ventilation system with filtration and UV irradiation can reduce viral particles in the air. How effective are these systems for prevention of transmission, and how expensive are they to install and maintain? Could we see a mass implementation of such systems that would prevent transmission of other sicknesses in the future and maybe the eradication of sick building syndrome? Fantastic questions. Um, sick building syndrome is a, a sad uh, side effect of uh, attempts to make buildings more ecologically efficient. So if we put a lot of insulation in walls and we seal off buildings and we just cool them indoors using air handling systems, uh, it turns out viruses really like that. Um, and they can, you know, not just viruses, not just bacteria, but molds and funguses and all kinds of uh, illness-causing organisms find buildings to be a very fancy form of cave. <laughs> you know, um, if you've ever learned about spelunking or cave exploration, you know that there is an increased risk of infection vectors in those environments because the darkness and the temperature are just more conducive to those kinds of microorganisms than the outside, uh, you know, where the sun is is pretty pretty effective uh, giant UV irradiator. <laughs> and um, plus you have a lot more air movement. And... <sighs> These are good questions. They are very complex. So when we think about COVID transmission, which is not airborne like the measles is airborne, or not to the same extent, but is airborne in that it appears to be carried in these little aerosol micro droplets. Um, you, we believe it takes a certain threshold of viral particles in a window of time to create a statistically meaningful risk of infection. So it is true that you've, that air handling systems do circulate air and can therefore change transmission patterns. You know, I saw one analysis of a spreading event where there was a restaurant, and this restaurant had an air current caused by an air conditioning system that meant that people in the, in the line of tables all got exposed to COVID-19 and several people got cases, Meanwhile, an adjacent table to the kind of source table where COVID got into the room, nobody there got sick, and it had to do with the direction of the airflow. Uh, now, in terms of that actually cycling through an air conditioner and then getting blown back out, nobody knows. That That's the so frustrating thing about COVID right now. So many good questions, we don't have answers. So if COVID's getting pulled into the intake of an air conditioner and then getting blown out again, are the droplets in sufficient concentration to still transmit the disease? We don't know. So far, most of what we think we're seeing indoors is a result of air movement across a space. Basically, particles getting blown one direction from someone who's sick 
on to other people that does not appear to also include being pulled into an air conditioner and back out of another vent. So far, we're not sure. Um, now, in terms of filtration and UV radiation, uh, yeah, we know there's UV filters that have an antimicrobial effect that is significant. They are very expensive. They are relatively difficult to maintain. Uh, we don't know if they work on COVID yet or not. There's just not a lot of testing there. Uh, there's a relatively new technology to begin with. And we don't know. I would say that's promising. I would say as one, uh, it's not going to be one thing that solves COVID, right? It's going to be a number of interventions stacking together. So if you look at like improve uh, filtration in air handling systems and universal masking and frequent surface disinfection and, 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 and you add all these things up each time you're making the space a little bit safer. None of them are a silver bullet. Uh, there's just tremendous variability in terms of what the transmission rates of what we've seen indoors. Air currents are a big factor, especially in cases where they create vortexes or vortices because they help aerosol droplets disperse in the air and in some cases even concentrate them. Um, you know, kind of to uh, your point, Lauren, I've kind of resigned myself for a long time. I'm just not going to be going indoors anywhere. By a long time, I mean until we reach herd immunity with a vaccine. Because when we do contact tracing of spreading events, um, we're just not seeing a lot of spread events that are outdoors. Indoors is very risky. Um, masking should absolutely be happening indoors all the time, every person, other than like at your home. And I've seen some guidance that if you have if you have a very at-risk person at your home and like an, an essential worker, to go back to our previous question, there should be masks even in the home. Homes are risky. Um, not homes are risky. Indoors spaces are risky. We have maybe one case of a super spreader event outdoor. Like maybe one. That one's not even certain. And then we have a small number that were indoor-outdoor where outdoor transmission could have played a role. But it looks like outdoors just a lot safer. Uh, you know, we look at the protests, the Black Lives Matter protests, and we're not seeing still in the in the data uh, super spreading events come from those. And yet, gosh, we are seeing it at churches. And we're having a conversation about is this religious discrimination and churches are fighting to be able to reopen. And it's just the science, folks. Outdoors a lot safer. Just a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot safer because of the wind and the sun and the volume of air that droplets have to disperse in. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying go pack in close to people outdoors because I can already hear people's thoughts as they're like, ooh, science might just said outdoors is safe. No. Outdoors is a whole lot safer than indoors. And that means probably more promising the, the, the manufacturing and expert labor required, by the way, if, if we've learned anything in COVID-19, is that there's no such thing as unskilled labor. <laughs> That's just not a thing. Anyway, um, so we need, we would need, imagine how many, the demand for AC installers, if we had to retrofit every AC system in a commercial office building and churches and shopping malls, with UV filters, right? That's a huge lift. Ventilation, I think, is the easier answer. Ventilating outside air in some studies has shown promise as little as 10 minutes of every 60 at reducing transmission rates indoors. Might mean we're like hot for a while because it's summer. Um, but the more you can ventilate outside air, the safer indoor spaces become. Um, and then eventually I think, you know, there's promise for, you know, efficacy of mechanical and UV filters to help things with like, like sick building syndrome. I honestly don't think we can manufacture and install UV filters in, in enough buildings as fast as we can formulate and distribute a vaccine. I think either way, um, I'm not planning I don't think there's going to be a science mic event where I stand on a stage and sell tickets indoors until late 2021, maybe 2022, maybe even late 2022. 
Um, it just won't be. I don't. I don't see how it could be safe before then. We got to hit herd immunity with a vaccine. Um, and so, Lauren, I'm with you. You know, I'm also. Um, I have a lot of health health factors. I'm not immunocompromised, but I do have heart disease, and so COVID nineteen is a real risk for me. And so I just, you know, friends will ask if I want to go do blank, and I say no. What am I willing to do? Well, if you'd like to come over and sit ten feet away from me in my backyard, outdoors, let's do that. <laughs> and then I only do a couple of those a month. Um. Yeah, that's the situation that we are in and that we have kind of placed ourselves in. So great questions there. Uh, Rochelle has a great question, and it is, for people who live alone and haven't been able to really touch anyone since March, is it worth the risk to have one cuddle buddy who you don't live with? I'm still able to socialize at a distance, but the lack of physical affection is really wearing on me. I'm in a relationship with someone and we want to be able to touch each other, but they work in a public place where wearing a mask is required and live with two other people. I work from home and I've read about COVID bubbles or pods and wonder if there's a safe way to engage in physical affection with someone I trust where we can be honest about our level of exposure and strict about the precautions we take. Sometimes it feels worth the risk knowing that this will probably go on for another year or more. I can't imagine not touching someone for that long. And I'm also concerned about how a lack of touch can be really bad for my mental and physical well-being. At the same time, it feels reckless to put each other at risk. Any advice on the right balance considering the risks of COVID and the negative effects of lack of touch? Rochelle, I just have heard so many people share the same kind of curiosity and the same kinds of concerns. The listeners of this program are a lot younger than me. I'm 42. And as I look at the the demographics on the audience of this program, you know, there's people who still have the word teen in their name listening in significant numbers. And then a lot of people in their early 20s and late 20s listening to this program and there are, you know, your life circumstances are so different than mine. I was married before a lot of you were born. And um, I've thought about, you know, for me, in a very extreme form of social distancing, how much easier that's been for me. Um, as someone who's relatively uncomfortable with a lack of co- physical contact and is also married. So I get lots of cuddles and snuggles with my wife. Um. And you're right. Contact with other people is essential for mental health. And we are starting to play a balancing game between the risks of the impact of COVID, potential impacts, versus the guaranteed impacts of ongoing isolation, which are notable and significant. One thing I would say about pods, so-called COVID pods, is they are very risky. Let's imagine that you create a pod, and in that pod you have six people. Right? And they represent four households. Well, if they represent four households, if those people in those pods live with people who aren't in the pod, your pod's a lot bigger than you think. If those other people are in their own pods, your pod is a whole lot bigger than we think. And when we start to look at research, COVID pods don't really work at all. Um, Because people don't pay attention to... uh, the exposure risk they bring into a pod. Um, people, I don't think they're being malicious uh, or intentionally deceitful. Um, but if you can imagine, let's forget six people. Let's say that you have you and two people that are kind of your COVID physical contact people. Uh, and you would think it's a nice triangle, except if the two people you're in physical contact with aren't in contact with each other, and they have their own two people, and those people have their own two people, right? Uh, You're two degrees from eight people. (laughs) 
you know how you know how this works. If I keep going and they and they have two people and they have two people and they have two people, you just have like a really convenient propagation network for COVID nineteen. Um, so you do if you're going to do these kinds of arrangements, COVID pods or micro COVID pods, you have to be really strict about protocols, and your pods need to be closed loops of people. They need to be self-contained. There needs to be people can't be in multiple pods. Um, and so one thing I've advocated is uh, have a COVID roommate, someone you move in with for the pandemic. And now you create a new household unit with you and that other person or, or two other people or whatever, get together in the same physical space uh, and become the, the, the equivalent of my family. You know, I've got me and Jenny and Madison and Macy and Ruby, our beloved dog. And we all live here. We've all been staying here. And we're the people each other have seen, you know, since late February. And um, we have seen other people in a socially distanced, masked, outdoor context. Um, but in terms of the people I make physical contact with, uh, that's the list. That's Jenny, Madison, Macy, uh, and me. And um, that's a closed loop, the four of us. Now, that's a wife and a husband and two children. But you can create the same arrangement with people that you, you know, aren't your, your blood relatives. You can choose a family. Um, and then just like a hug is a great thing. Touch is a nice thing that's, I think, easier to do if you are sharing a physical premises. Because otherwise, you're just, it's a trust thing. And um, as people get more and more and more and more feeling confined and boxed in by the pandemic, uh, they just tend to engage in riskier behaviors. They're not even always aware of it. Uh, that's human psychology. We're, we're a tough species that way. Uh, so I would say, yes, it, you know, as long as you're, you're, you're cuddle buddy and you make a closed loop or cuddle buddies, that's a lot safer than simply saying, well, I'm only with three other people at a time that, you know, <laughs> that's, that's not a very effective mitigation strategy. All right. Forgive me. For some reason, if I don't scroll for a while, my Chrome just tends to completely freeze. So I apologize for the long delay there. Uh, this episode won't be edited by Greg. This will be a live drop after I'm done recording. So if you're like, what's with the long pauses? That's the production difference this week. Last question comes from Joyce. Joyce says, I heard Bill Gates on CNN talk about the days during which a person with COVID-19 is actually shedding the virus slash infectious. He said, and I don't recall exactly, roughly a couple days prior to being infected with or without symptoms and only a few days after. So an infected person is not infectious if they have the illness for days slash weeks slash months. Can you explain in detail what science says is the period of time a person is actually shedding slash spreading the virus? Also, Mr. Gates was speaking of this to reiterate how useless most tests are particularly if they don't provide same-day results. Can you speak more to testing as well? Is it all a false sense of security at this point? Joyce, terrible news. We COVID-19, there's still so much we don't know. One of the things that's tough about COVID-19, uh, well, no, not COVID-19. One of the things that's tough about SARS, COV-2, that's the virus that causes COVID-19, is it causes basically multiple diseases. What we think of as COVID-19, right, um, is really the respiratory infection associated with SARS-CoV-2. That's not the only thing SARS-CoV-2 does. We have seen cardiac infections from SARS-CoV-2. We have seen gastrointestinal infections from SARS-CoV-2. Now, don't get me wrong. Those are still COVID-19. Um, but depending on what systems in your body gets COVID-19, it does affect the ways in which you can shed virus. So, for example, it looks like when people get gastro-COVID, 
they do have viral particles in their fecal matter, in their stool. Um, and it, it, if that's the case, then what we call smear transmission, where you have an infected surface, is a bigger concern we thought. So when we look at COVID-19 respiratory, we've been saying that smear transmission is not a big deal. And it looks like for respiratory infections, it's not. But people who are getting it in their stomach and in their intestines, they are probably having smear contact to get that infection. Again, I don't know for sure. Researchers don't know for sure, but that's an assumption that uh, looks possible, perhaps even likely. So... Um, and then we know that you get kind of long hauler, long hauler scenarios, um, some of which are caused by viral particles, and some of which, after there's no more viral particles, appear to be caused by an uh, immune system response to the virus. And then you have something like MISC that is happening after the virus is already gone. Who's contagious and who's not? We don't know. So when you hear Bill Gates talking about shedding virus, what they're talking about is in like the most common presentations of respiratory COVID. And that's how we make public policy decisions. And there, um, there we have some more specifics. That's kind of the timelines you're talking about from, you know, roughly a day or two following exposure, you can begin shedding virus and then that can continue, you know, until day 10 day 12 somewhere in there typically but people can shed virus longer than that and in some cases they can shed virus earlier than that um so that's the problem uh testing helps us cut down now but again if it's all about controlling the rate of infection the more we control the rate of infection the more we have hospital resources because we are making progress in therapeutics we're learning ways to treat COVID that are impacting the number of people who die and impacting how severe, severe case presentations are. If we can keep fewer people sick at once, we can treat people better and the virus is less of a threat to people and therefore less of a threat to society. So testing in that case is great. The problem with testing right now is we don't have enough testing capacity. It takes too long to get test results back. There is promising things like the new saliva direct protocol. There's a possibility in the near future our testing situation is going to get a lot better. But right now, some people are waiting 48 hours, 72 hours to get test results. And yeah, that is ridiculous. Uh, unless, you're, unless people are quarantining from the time they test to when they get their results, a test like that isn't significant. And 72 hours later, if you haven't quarantined, then you may have picked up the virus in the meantime, at which point your negative test result is not very helpful. Um, friends, increasing our testing capacity is one of the most pressing issues we have. If we want to start getting anywhere remotely back to normal, if we want to start opening anything, especially schools, we need to be able to test people frequently. Uh, something like Saliva Direct, if it ends up working, and it's very promising so far, if we could test most people twice a week and get rapid turnaround on those tests, um, now we're talking. Now we have a possibility of kids going back to school and um, we have a possibility of, of, of reinstating the truly, truly essential parts of our society and our culture. I don't know if stuff like Saliva Direct makes indoor dining or bars possible again. It depends on how low we get our case rate. But I can imagine a scenario in which we come to our senses, we get good testing through Saliva Direct in place and as a protocol, and then we do one last national four-day, or excuse me, four-week lockdown, a full lockdown, way more lockdown than we did in our first so-called lockdown. And we actually got our case rate low. If you did that and then have testing and then quarantine people who have positive uh, tests and then uh, do contact tracing, quarantine those people as well, you'd be surprised how close to normal we could get. And then every time you kind of have a little, a little uh, cluster explosion in a given population, a given city, then you do a two-week lockdown again. And I know, here's what I'm hoping. 
people are hearing that. What? Lockdowns over and over. How much better would it be to do a, a, a strong lockdown to get the, the caseload back under control, open things back up, and if we're open for six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, 16 weeks, you know, and then we close down for 14 days again, and then we're able to open back up because we have testing and contact tracing. I don't know about you. That feels a lot better to me than we're, you know, than we have this kind of weird stratification of people who are going to work at risk forever and people are going to stay at their homes until there's a vaccine, which, again, could be 12 months, could be 20 months until we have that uh, vaccine through testing and distributed to enough people to be meaningful. Um, so right now, uh, we do our testing's not great. We have a lot of false positives, a lot of negative, false negatives, more than we want. Something like Saliva Direct would give us that turnaround that we need uh, as we learn more about when the virus is infectious and when people are shedding based on the different types of COVID presentation. Great, great question, Joyce. I hope you all enjoyed this uh, very long episode of questions and response about COVID-19. Um, I'd like to thank uh, Tanner Hearn and Victory Palmazano and Andrew Gulecki and Greg Nordine and Caitlin Hermstad and Brent Cradle and my patrons on Patreon and, and Jeb Botterford and all the folks that make Ask Science Mike possible. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I will talk to you again next week. Take care.